Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a special series on the Bohemian Podcast called The Great War, The Czech Experience. Here are your hosts. Good evening and welcome to a special centennial anniversary series on the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow of the History of Alchemy Podcast. The centennial of the start of World War I, the war to end all wars, is upon us. There are scheduled memorial tours and solemn layings of wreaths at historic battlefields all across Europe. There's so many angles to explore concerning the Great War. But we here at Bohemian Podcast would like to take uh, some time to kind of focus on what led to the Great War but, and the, the war itself, but from the Czech perspective. So to kind of paint a picture of what Austria-Hungary was like at the outbreak of the war, because Czech Republic didn't exist, right? So we have Bohemia and Moravia, and that's within Austria-Hungary. Hungary. And what's kind of interesting about Austria is obviously they're they're often blamed for starting the war. Right. You know, it was kind of um, they weren't the only reason. And, and if you look up like reasons for the outbreak of World War One, there there are many many. List. But as most of the listeners probably know, it, it was because of the the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. So the first the kind of spark that that lit the whole thing on fire was definitely in in Austria Hungary. It's easy to kind of see how this could have happened or. You know, if some people take the approach that history is inevitable, it's definitely easy to paint that picture. You, when you say Austria-Hungary, you're talking about a dual monarchy. He was both the emperor of Austria and also the king of Hungary. And what's interesting is that Bohemia was a kingdom, but he didn't call himself the king of Bohemia. There's already one hint that some of the, call them ethnicities or demographics of uh, some of the minorities, let's say, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were left out. So we don't just have Germans or Austrians and Hungarians. We have Czechs, Poles, Serbs, Slovaks, Slovaks, uh, Croats, um, Ukrainians. You know, I mean, really, the, across the board of, of exactly. Eastern Europe and Bohemia and, and Moravia that weren't part of the party. Yeah, right? and just by default, just 
right off the bat, just by the name of the country, you get it. You get an impression that some of them had to be left out. I mean, it, you know, some were kind of undermined. So that's kind of the the climate we want to talk about. That's part of what's needed to paint you this picture of you know, the landscape right before the war. And so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to set the table with this particular episode, our first episode on the series of the, the Czechs and the Great War. As we go through this series to kind of commemorate the centennial in, in of course, eight, 1914, uh, 2014, uh, we are going to have a destination uh, which is the first republic of the Czech Republic. So that that's one of the things that we're going to get to at, at this juncture. But right now we want to kind of set the table. We want to get everybody educated uh, to the point where you kind of have a good grasp. Now doing the research for this project I was always I was kind of struck about how much I really didn't know at first uh, about uh, some of the the reasons that led up to World War One. It was a tinderbox. Almost everybody knows that at the time. Monarchs that were connected by fa familiar ties. We've we got uh, so many other uh, reasons of growing nationalism across Europe. To name a few things, the unresolved territorial disputes, an intricate system of alliances, and therefore allies and foes. And, you know, one of the things that really kind of st stood out to me was that there was an arms race going on for decades that led to this, that led to this kind of militarization of Europe. When you say tinderbox, that's what this was. So uh, the Czechs at this point were just part going along for the ride. Uh, they, they were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, they uh, will talk about their role on many levels of this empire, but uh, they were not considered equals, as Travis said, and uh, that would kind of uh, be one of the defining moments why they really didn't support as a whole the Austro-Hungarian side of the war. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they're kind of an interesting people to look at when you talk about World War One because before this, there was an independence movement movement going on. They were they were under Austria for some three hundred years. And just in the 19th century, they, they almost reinvented their language. They reinvented a, a huge literal, literary movement and also things like we, sp we spoke about on other podcasts like ice hockey or Sokol and, you know, those kind of things. So kind of a, a nationalistic movement on the Czechs part to get some recognition. And before this, it was just taken for granted that if you want to be educated, the first thing you do is learn German, and the second thing you do is try to move to Vienna or, you know, and this was shifting. And so like you already alluded to, so as soon as the war broke out, not all Czechs were loyal. In fact, maybe, you know, I wouldn't say the majority instantly switched sides, but um, probably the majority thought about it. Well, let's, let's think about that for a moment. When we talked, when we had the, the Sokol um, episode, uh, Travis, you, you were talking about the research you found that, that Throughout uh, the early days of Sokol, the, this athletic movement that really kind of spurred Czech nationalism at the time, um, they dressed themselves in the yeah. in the uniforms representing the foes, the enemies of the state of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now that's a really, as we say, a wire in the eye here in Czech Republic uh, to to the powers that be. So you can see that animosity is, is there, yep. and uh, the, it, you know when you talk about loyalty to the the double eagle. Uh, they uh, they kind of fell by the wayside when the war started kind of kicking up into, into gear. Uh, some of them uh, split off to England, of course. Some of them went to the French Foreign Legion. Some of them defected to the Russian side. Uh, and some, as we'll talk about in this series, stayed with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm -hmm. So it really was kind of a country without a home. There, if you were a, a, a person of Czech nationality, there was a lot of confusion there. So just in case our listeners aren't aware, you know, because if you look at a map today, Austria was much bigger than it is today. Hungary was much bigger than it is today. 
um, Austria went all the way, you know, included Romania. chunks of, yeah. of yeah, yeah, well, Hungary included uh, all of Trans Transnistria was actually um, Hungarian, all of, uh, you know, northern Slovenia, parts of Croatia, Serbia, that was all, you know, maybe uh, kind of considered occupied or kind of under, you know, not quite solid borders, but, but Austria was trying to expand in that direction. And then obviously, you know, what is what is Czech Republic and Slovakia was, you know, Slovakia was just plain Hungary. There was no Slovakia. Kind of a much bigger area than, than people might realize. And in fact, when people speak of the great powers of Europe, there was this this balancing act of, and this was this was from a treaty before, where they said if we have five major powers, then you know we can we you know that will kind of deter war because we have France and, and England, we have Germany, Russia, we have Austria, and that will kind of um, Italy played a role. This kind of balance of power would deter war because it was kind of clear to everybody in the 19th century that if there would be another war, it would be a big one. We're talking 700,000 square kilometers of an empire. What does that mean? Uh, a lot. <laughs> no, it's big. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's huge. And, um, it, of course, different areas represented different kind of uh, power seats in, within, this, within this empire, all politically uh, charged in different ways. And it really kind of was a balancing act of, about who had the power to do this or that within the parliamentary structure, uh, within this monarchy. And uh, it, it was amazing that things didn't really fall off the hinges a lot sooner than this. Think about all the things that led up to this in the late 19th century. You had the Franco-Prussian War, you know, that, that set, up, uh, set up things. You had the Austro-Prussian War in 1866. Uh, that that kind of put the Austrians back in their place to to almost be subservient in some ways politically to the Prussians. There was a lot of things that were kind of going on that the chess pieces were already starting to move heading into the 20th century along with the Industrial Revolution and militarization. So the militarization of things started to really pick up. And you're right, the tinderbox we talked about was just ready to be ignited. And I think people did see it for what it was. But it was kind of hard to stop the train from moving at that point. So let's take a look at Franz Joseph, uh, probably a very familiar name to most people. He was the sov sovereign emperor and was first crowned king of both Austria and Hungary. Each of the empire's two monarchies continued to exist in their own right. That's kind of an important statement to think of in, in, in this issue. They had their own parliament, their own prime ministers, their own cabinet, and, agree and a, somewhat of a degree of domestic self-government. All right. The divisions of this empire separated the culture from the rural agricultural peasantry and the wealthy noble families, and also from the industrialized factions of workers. So you had these kind of different sort of subsections of, of, of things that kind of, cogs of the wheel that kind of helped move this, this empire uh, through. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point, because, so we are talking about an age where they still had nobility, and in fact the parliament was, you know, basically the noble class, but then you're talking about industrialization. So you have you have capitalists, you have factories. The Czechs were doing things with their steam engines and but, and, yeah. to, and this kind of industrialization. Taking huge strides while your parliament still has, you know, is a, is a noble class. And um, if, I mean this nobility is also interesting in, in how it played out because if you look at a map at the time and you look at which lands the noble family still ruled, you see people with German last names like Rosenberg, Liechtenstein. We've mentioned them all on the shows before, and they had huge swaths of land in the Czech Republic. You know, I kind of I wonder how that went over, <laughs> right? You know, with the locals, and so then you have these this new kind of nouveau riche class of industrialists that are saying, you know, hey, why? You know, I don't have a title in front of my name, but 
you know, in some ways I'm more powerful than these guys. So yeah, a, a huge kind of uh, disparity between classes of people and, and, and ethnicity definitely played a role. Another thing is demographics within the Czech Republic. Prague at this time was very split. So I, we might have mentioned this before on a different show. I can't remember the context, but if, if you're in downtown Prague, so if you were Czech and you wanted to take your Sunday stroll, you would go up Narodny Trida, which means National Street in, in English. And if you were German-speaking, you would go up Napřikopje. And so on one side, you'd kind of have all the Czech shops, and then and it's kind of a, like a 90-degree angle or... Or he heading toward Winchester Square. Yeah, Is that so they, right? yeah. they both head towards the river, but but different, and they both, you know, from Winchester Square towards the river, but in different directions. And so one you'd have your Czech shops, the other one would have your German shops, and one you'd hear Czech on the street, one you'd have German on the street. To this day, around the Castle region, where they've restored some of the older um, paint layers on the buildings, let's say, you can still see the signs in German below the signs in Czech. So it was very much a bilingual community. I mean, if you look at older Czech words, a lot more of them came from German than before their kind of Czech Renaissance, where they reinvented the Czech language and, and you know, really tried to speak Czech, more, you know, like a more pure strain of Czech. We've got a, a situation where we're looking at the, the people are really disconnected from their leadership in a lot of ways. They feel, the Czech people feel, I'm sure, separated by language, by culture, uh, but yet still underneath the Austro-Hungarian flag. And you kind of wonder, that when we talk about the, the leadership of this empire, how they all kind of brought the people together. And they, they, at times, they probably did some good things with that. Most of the time, it looks like they, they basically did not. And, and Emperor Franz Joseph had his, his problems trying to get things together as this, this elected monarch uh, really was trying to, to hold on to his, his power within this empire, within a very changing Europe. He had uh, uh, enjoyed a great respect from the people, at least from the Austrian aspect of things, and considered himself to be very intelligent, fair, and steady. Franz Joseph uh, contributed to the outbreak of World War I, uh, has been a source of a great deal of contention. We don't know if he was the one that kind of helped things move along, but just just know that his nephew, who Travis, I think you'll talk about in a few minutes, Franz Ferdinand, was somewhat estranged from, from Franz Joseph. Uh, he considered Franz Ferdinand to be too flighty, you know, kind of head-in-the-clouds sort of guy, too progressive uh, to be uh, a good, solid emperor to take his stead. However, by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, Franz Joseph uh, was outraged to the point of, we need to, we need to fight. There was that familiar yeah. connection. He did know that uh, Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand was going to take over. He may not have mm -hmm. been really happy with it, but he knew that uh, at some point he was going to have to hand over the reins to this really difficult time in, in this empire's history. From what I understand from my reading is that he was kind of the voice of reason. One of Franz Josef's like kind of main advisors was just saying war, war, war. You know, we got to show these Serbians what's up. We got to, you know, they were in the middle of the Second Balkan War, and they're saying, you know, we got to, we got to step in. Uh, we got to defend ourselves, maybe even expand. And Franz Ferdinand was saying, no, remember, you know, if you if you attack if you attack this uh, Slavic nation, there's Mother Russia right around the corner. And uh, Franz Ferdinand was really kind of anti-war. And yeah, I mean, when he was dead, there was there was no more voice of reason. It was just war, war, war. So, and, and that's that's one of the the bullet points we we alluded to, but didn't really focus too hard uh, on the very intro of the show was 
that connection between uh, Austro-Hungary and the Serbian people uh, at the time. This, the, the pig war, as it was called, uh, really kind of set, set the stage for all this. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire wanted to put under their heel the, the Serbian uh, people, right? Now, why wasn't that a good deal was because the Serbs had a connection to Mother Russia, and Russia wanted to come in and help them. Well, there was a, a, famous, uh, a famous letter that was written from Franz Josef to uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. And the Kaiser, the Kaiser received this letter, and the letter had said, hey, you know what? The Austro-Hungarian Empire wants to attack Serbia. We, we feel that they, they've really, this is the time to do it. We want to do it, even if the Russians are going to be on the side. And Wilhelm, not believing that the Austro-Hungarian Empire militarily was ready, not believing they had the stomach for war, not believing they had the mobilization to really kind mm -hmm. of conduct this war, didn't think it was going to happen. Said, do what you feel is right, we'll back you up. Yeah. All right? Now, we all know what happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay? So when you bring in the other partners, such as the Russians decided to come on in, does this kind of give you kind of a feeling about some of the political climate we have in the 21st century, Travis? We, we talk about specifically with Syria right now. Right, uh, the this, yeah. the Syrian issue had so many different components. The there's, Chinese there's and the few, Russians don't yeah. want to don't want the United States and the other NATO powers to get involved, mm -hmm. and uh, there's this kind of sort of tug of war: who's going to be on one side versus the other? It doesn't seem like a whole lot has changed here. Yeah, there's there's a few situations that kind of remind me of this. When you mentioned the the arms race, for instance, earlier, Wilhelm decided that they wanted a, a big navy because they were you know like Bismarck and and some others were kind of thinking more and more about colonial colonialization and uh, they actually had colonies like in today's Zanzibar and Tanzania and stuff um, and others so you know they were thinking about a uh, a navy but every time they said we're gonna up our navy England said something like well our navy will always be double the size of Germany's and Germany's will say said you know what we're gonna make ours we need to at least be 75 percent the size of England's so Germany would build a warship, England would build two. So Germany would have to build another one. So England would have to build another one. An early you 20th know, century arms race. Yeah, and it was, yep, it was, you know, just navies gone wild. And, uh, is that right? Yeah. Navies gone crazy. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's one example. So, so there was clearly this arms race between Germany and England. And then, you know, Austria was kind of looking over their shoulder to see what Russia was doing. And, you know, they would, they would threaten the Serbs. And if the Serbs listened and the Russians didn't do anything, which that happened, for instance, like to, you know, to get out of Albania. And, uh, you know, they're kind of testing the waters and seeing what would happen. So, yeah, I mean, they were, they were clearly both in it together. And if Austria did anything, it was, it was clear that they would have the backing of Germany, whereas also clear that uh, Russia would have the backing of, of France and England, although not quite as willingly but yeah you know as we know that ended up happening so um yeah it kind of set the stage for a pretty gruesome thing to happen well and and, and travis as we can see the table being set here on who's going to take who, whoever side uh we can also take a look at what the the austro-hungarian empire was doing militarily what was very interesting about about this about this question was that the dual monarchy's military force was really essentially comprised of three armies those which uh, still belong to the Kingdom of Austria and Hungary, along with a newly created force called the Imperial and Royal Army. Uh, there was a considerable division between the three, if you can imagine that. They all really kind of do the same thing or have the same sort of goal set. The two older armies were protected by their respective parliaments, receiving more funding and better equipment 
and thus better training. The Imperial Army uh, served to always be short of qualified officers, and three quarters of that uh, uh, had had been come had come from Aus the Austrian uh, Empire. So uh, this created its own problems since Austrian officers most likely spoke German, uh, but the majority of soldiers were Hungarians, Czechs, Slovaks, and a, a list of other uh, uh, nationalities. To combat this language gap, this is, I think, really interesting in the research we did, enlisted soldiers were taught a set of 68 single-word commands. That This allowed the Imperial and Royal Army to function as a whole through the considerable communication gaps that they had. Most soldiers were conscripts, which means that uh, this really didn't help the Right, you know, you do this for for king and country. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of on your own a little bit. And so, could you imagine that, Travis? Sixty-eight words. And so, if you were if you were some kind of uh, uh, commandant or some maybe even like a sergeant trying to train these guys, you had sixty-eight yeah. words you could do to train a functional army. Doesn't sound really smart, does it? That's that sounds really strange. Yeah. yeah that... Well, and, and keep this in mind too. And this this is another interesting issue. Um, when you talk about the war with the, the, the military action against Serbia, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was really, really focused on old style of, of 19th century warfare, which meant this. They saw an enemy. They attacked without slowing down. It didn't, they didn't take anything into consideration as far as planning or uh, you know the, the basic stuff you're taught in war college. They said, attack, attack, attack. We take them on the offensive. Hit them, hit them, hit them. Well, that was great in the 19th century, but now introduce what? Machine guns, shelling, all those type of things that the Russians yeah. were supplying the Serbians. Mm -hmm. So they just walked into a meat grinder. And so they were basically torn apart. So now you've got Czechs, you've got Slovaks, Hungarians, people that aren't all that focused on, on winning this for Franz Joseph, you know, and the Austro-Hungarian flag. And they're just getting decimated decimated over and over again trying to take Serbia, a place they really didn't care about. Right? Yeah. So so this is kind of gave you an idea about how this might have soured some of these subnational groups within the empire very quickly. This is even before World War One really got kicking. Yeah, one one more tidbit to point out that made this kind of a strange country to, to be so warmongering is that uh, just for example, so we have all these nationalities and all these ethnicities, but um, you know, transport wasn't really as advanced as in other countries. So, like, if you look at, you know, miles of railroad per per square mile of the country, they were way behind. So, even though it's not a gigantic country, still, if you want to go to Vienna to Budapest, that might have worked. But many of the villages, most of the villages, were in no way connected. There was only a few railroad lines. Um, you know, and this was a time when when England was just extremely well connected by railroad. Um, parts of Czech Republic were starting to be because that's where all the industry was, which again is a huge disparity. You know, we talked about the industrialization of Czech Republic, but Slovakia and to a large part Hungary were very uh, kind of agriculture based and still pretty rural. And so there just, there wasn't a lot of mix of people, but then when you translate that to wartime, that also means it's hard to get troops where they need to be. Well, there's, not... there's no infrastructure. Exactly. I mean, so, so if you're talking about, as we saw later on in World War I, uh, to be able to transport those giant cannons, the big Berthas, remember mm -hmm. those, right? I remember those. W were you there? Yeah. <laughs> the, the big Berthas, they were on railroad tracks. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they were launching within, a what was it, 80 miles, 90 miles, and hitting, and hitting Paris. But the only way they could do that 
from 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 the the German side of, of the border was because they had on railroads. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have no way to move move munitions or troop movement uh, or or military uh, equipment, you're really setting yourself up for failure. And now, yeah. luckily for these guys, that you know the the Western Front was kind of far removed, but they still had to hold the eastern side, the eastern flank of things. And uh, without that kind of infrastructure, they were already already fighting with one hand tied behind their back. You know, we kind of set the stage now, but. At the outbreak of World War One, can you can you imagine like Slovaks, Czechs, and other kind of Slavic people, Serbians, whatever? Do you imagine how excited they must have been to fight their Slavic Russian brothers? Not, Not so, so much. much, right? Yeah. So we talked about these these mass defections, and now we get the the so-called uniform coming into play, where every piece of clothing was taken from or inspired by some army that had fought the Austrians in the past, well, this same gymnastics uniform now will be the inspiration for the first Czech kind of foreign legion uh, uniform. And they fought with Russians, but they also fought against Russians with the Austrians. They fought, um, you know, they, they fought on all sides, basically. They fled to France. We'll kind of touch on on really interesting aspects of World War One that are that are really Czech or unique to kind of understanding Czech history and then of course the first time Czechoslovakia becomes an independent state so in this time these independent movement independence movements in throughout Bohemia they kind of took overseas and we we start to hear of these national kind of folk heroes like um, Edward Benash yeah, yeah. Milan Stefanek um, Masaryk who who at that time he was in, a professor. In the war. Yeah, and he was known as Professor T.G. Masaryk. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, he gets gets to this point that he's going to play a huge role. Yep, he, uh, from from over from abroad, right? Yeah. So he he headed to the United States, and um, Milan Stefanik and Benish went to France and Britain, and all kind of you know working different angles to try to gain recognition with the Allies, and you know pointing and saying, look how many of us don't like the Austrians, and and how much of us are helping you, and wouldn't it be great if if, uh, we could be an independent country that, you know, would, by the way, be your ally. There's a lot of interesting stuff that, that comes to play there. And let's let's not forget the Czech Legion. I mean, you alluded to that, Travis. Mm-hmm. That's probably going to be one of our center center jewels on this in this, this abbreviated series on World War One. It's I. a great story. It's oh, an yeah. amazing story, and we will definitely touch upon that in in a very uh, special way on it's, on this. It's better than you think. It's that good. <laughs> it's it, amazing. It's yeah. It's really incredible. Right. So so we have we, you know to recap, uh, Travis. We just kind of go over a few things. We want to make sure that that you got this in your head before we move any further. That the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a dual monarchy that uh, that had merged uh, two older states but had a lot of dysfunction within this this empire of people that weren't playing uh, so much for the the perpetuation of the empire uh, that will play uh, a big problem later on in the war we also talk about how uh, Germany played a significant role in this and basically the everybody trying to take sides from the Russians taking the sides of the Serbians and you have the triple entente coming together. You have the central powers coming together. Uh, it was a powder keg. We talked about Franz Joseph as well. We talked about the 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 monarchy that all played the role. They had a familiar connection with them mm-hmm. uh, that this made things even a little bit more stressful. <laughs> that they were all somehow connected uh, connected with familiar ties. Yeah. Right. Um, and then finally, we want to talk about the the modernization of the time. Everything coming together for a perfect storm. The technology, the Industrial Revolution, and all these old 19th century mentalities of nationalism that were kind of coming together at, at, at just the worst possible time. And some of our listeners might know, 
you might have you can look forward to the good soldier Schweik and Yara Zimmerman. There you go. Larger than life. <laughs> Maybe fictional characters that we'll definitely have to talk about because they're from this time period. A quick note about the website. If you go to Bohemican Podcast, which is bohemican.com, you'll be able to see a, a, a specified page on the website dedicated to the, the Czechs in the Great War. And so we'll have uh, so, some of our information, our notes on that page, some of the things we find out for this abbreviated series to kind of catch you up to the centennial of World War One and how the Czechs play a large role in this war. So we want to thank you so much for listening to this first episode of The Czechs in the Great War on the Bohemican Podcast. We'll be with you shortly. Yeah, thank you very much. Take care. You have been listening to The Great War, The Czech Experience, brought to you by The Bohemican Podcast. For more information on this special series, please go to bohemican.com. Thank you for listening.